15. As on the mountains of Abyssinia start a wave of moisture lapping over the edges of the Nubian desert, it is immediately followed by a tide of Arabs with their camels and herds, who make a wide zone of temporary occupation spread over the newly created grassland, but who retire in a few weeks before the desiccating heat of summer. Nevertheless, all natural features of the earth's surface which serve to check, retard or weaken the expansion of peoples, and therefore hold them apart, tend to become racial or political boundaries, and all present a zone-like character. The wide ice field of the Scandinavian Alps was an unpeopled waste long before the political boundary was drawn along it. It has not in reality been a definite natural line that has divided Norway from her neighbor on the east, it has been a band of desert land, up to hundreds of miles in width. So utterly desolate and apart from the area of continuous habitation has this been, that the greater part of it, the district north of Trondheim, was looked upon even as recently as the last century as a common district. Only nomadic laps wandered about in it, sometimes taxed by all three countries. A parceling out of this desert common district was not made toward Russia until 1826. Toward Sweden it was made in 1751. In former centuries the Verdammer Moor west of the river Ems used to be a natural desert borderland separating East and West Friesland, despite the similarity of race, speech and country on either side of it. It undoubtedly contributed to the division of Germany and the Netherlands along the present frontier line, which has been drawn the length of this moor for a hundred kilometers. Any geographical feature which, like this, presents a practically uninhabitable area, forms a scientific boundary, not only because it holds apart the two neighboring peoples and thereby reduces the contact and friction which might be provocative of hostilities, but also because it lends protection against attack. This motive, as also the zone character of all boundaries, comes out conspicuously in the artificial border wastes surrounding primitive tribes and states in the lower status of civilization. The early German tribes depopulated their borders in a wide girdle, and in this wilderness permitted no neighbors to reside. The width of this zone indicated the valor and glory of the state, but was also valued as a means of protection against an expected attack. Caesar learned that between the Suevi and Chorosai tribes dwelling near the Rhine, Sylvanus Ibi, Infinita Magnitudine Quayo Calator Basinis, Hank Lange Introsus Perdneret Pro Native Omuro Objectum Chorosfos Absuevi Suevos Cab Chorosai's Injuries Incursionibus Pro Hibir. The same device appears among the Huns, when Ella was pressing upon the frontier of the Eastern Empire in 448 AD his envoy sent to Constantinople demanded that the Romans should not cultivate a belt of territory, a hundred miles wide and three hundred miles long, south of the Danube, but maintain this as a march. When King Alfonso I-751-764 AD of Mountain Asturias began the reconquest of Spain from the Saracens, he adopted the same method of holding the foe at arm's length. He seized Old Castile as far as the River Douro, but the rest of the province south of that stream he converted into a waste boundary by transporting the Christians thence to the north side, and driving the Mohammedans yet farther southward. Similarly Xenophon found that the Armenian side of the river Contrites, which formed the boundary between the Armenian plains and the highlands of Carduchia, was unpeopled and destitute of villages for a breadth of 15 miles, from fear of the marauding Kurds, in the eastern Sudan. Especially in that wide territory along the Nile-Congo watershed occupied by the Zandif, Junker found the frontier wilderness a regular institution owing to the exposure of the border districts in the perennial intertribal feuds. The same testimony comes from Barth, Boyd Alexander, speak.
and other explorers in the Sudan and the neighboring parts of equatorial Africa. The vast and fertile region defined by the Ohio and Tennessee rivers, lay as a debatable border between the Algonquin Indians of the north and the Appalachians of the south. Both claimed it, both used it for hunting, but neither dared dwell therein. Similarly the Cherokees had no definite understanding with their savage neighbors as to the limits of their respective territories the effectiveness of their claim to any particular tract of country usually diminished with every increase of its distance from their villages. The consequence was that a considerable strip of territory between the settlements of two tribes, Cherokees and Creeks for instance, though claimed by both, was practically considered neutral ground and the common hunting ground of both, the Creeks whose most western villages from 1771 to 1798 were located along the Coosa and Upper Alabama rivers, were separated by 300 miles of wilderness from the Chickasaws to the northwest, and by a 150 mile zone from the Choctaws, the most northern Choctaw towns, in turn, lay 160 miles to the south of the Chickasaw Nation, whose compact settlements were located on the watershed between the western sources of the Tombigbee and the headstream of the Yazoo. The wide intervening zone of forest and cane break was hunted upon by both nations. Sometimes the border is preserved as a wilderness by formal agreement. A classic example of this case is found in the belt of Adenunded land, 50 to 90 kilometers wide, which China and Korea once maintained as their boundary. No settler from either side was allowed to enter, and all travel across the border had to use a single passway, where three times annually a market was held. On the Russo-Mongolian border south of Lake Baikal, the town of Kaktau, which was established in 1688 as an entrepot of trade between the two countries, is occupied in its northern half by Russian factories and in its southern by the Mongolian Chinese quarters, while between the two is a neutral space devoted to commerce. These border wastes do not always remain empty. However, even when their integrity is respected by the two neighbors whom they serve to divide, Alien races often intrude into their unoccupied reaches. The boundary wilderness between the Sudanese states of Wadi and Darfur harbors several semi-independent states whose insignificance is a guarantee of their safety from conquest. Similarly in the wide border district between the Creeks on the east and the Choctaws on the west were found typical small, detached tribes the Chattos and Thomas of 40 huts each on the Mobile River, the Tensaw tribe with a 100 huts on the Tensaw River and the Mobilians near the confluence of the Tombigbee and Alabama, along the desolate highlands separating Norway and Sweden the nomadic laps, with their reindeer herds, have penetrated southward to 62 degrees north latitude, reinforcing the natural barrier by another barrier of alien race. From this point southward, the coniferous forests begin and continue the border waste in the form of a zone some 60 miles wide, this was unoccupied till about 1600 when into it slowly filtered in immigration of Finns, whose descendants today constitute an important part of the still thin population along the frontier to the heights back of Christiania. Only 30 miles from the coast does the border zone between Norway and Sweden, peopled chiefly by intruding foreign stocks, laps and Finns, contract and finally merge into the denser Scandinavian settlements, where the border waste offers favorable conditions of life and the intruding race has reached a higher status of civilization. It multiplies in the Sunpeopled tract and soon spreads at the cost of its less advanced neighbors. The old no-man's land between the Ohio and Tennessee was a line of least resistance for the expanding colonies, who here poured in a tide of settlement between the northern and southern Indians, just as later other pioneers filtered into the vague border territory of weak tenure between the Choctaws and Creeks, and there on the Tombigbee, Mobile and Tensor rivers. 
formed the nucleus of the state of Alabama. The sentimented hem of territory surrounding so many savage and barbarous peoples reflects their superficial and insystematic utilization of their soil, by reason of which the importance of the land itself and the proportion of population to area are greatly reduced. It is a part of that uneconomic and extravagant use of the land, that appropriation of wide territories by small tribal groups, which characterizes the lower stages of civilization as opposed to the exploitation of every square foot for the support of a teeming humanity, which marks the most advanced states. Each stage puts its own valuation upon the land according to the return from it which each expects to get. The low valuation is expressed in the border wilderness, by which a third or even a half of the whole area is wasted, and also in the readiness with which savages often sell their best territory for a song. For the same reason they leave their boundaries undefined, a mile nearer or farther. What does it matter? Moreover, their fitful or nomadic occupation of the land leads to oscillations of the frontiers with every attack from without and every variation of the tribal strength within. Their unstable states rarely last long enough in a given form or size to develop fixed boundaries, hence, the vagueness as to the extent of tribal domains among all savage peoples, and the conflicting land claims which are the abiding source of war. Owing to these overlapping boundaries border districts claimed but not occupied the American colonists met with difficulties in their purchase of land from the Indians, often paying twice for the same strip. Even civilized peoples may adopt a waste boundary where the motive for protection is peculiarly strong, as in the half-mile neutral zone of lowland which ties the rock of Gibraltar to Spain, on a sparsely populated frontier, where the abundance of land reduces its value. They may throw the boundary into the form of a common district, as in the vast, disputed Oregon country, accepted provisionally as a district of joint occupancy between the United States and Canada from 1818 to 1846, or that wide highland border which Norway so long shared with Russia and Sweden, in South America, where land is abundant and population sparse. This common boundary belt is not rare. It suggests a device giving that leeway for expansion desired by all growing states. By the Treaty of 1866, the frontier between Chile and Bolivia crossed the Atacama Desert at 24 degrees south latitude, but the zone between 23 degrees and 25 degrees was left under the common jurisdiction of the two states. For exploitation of the guano deposits and mineral wealth, a common border district on a much larger scale is found between Brazil and the eastern frontier of French Guiana. It includes a belt 185 miles 300 kilometers wide between the Oyapok and Arawari rivers, and is left as a neutral district till its fate is decided by arbitration. All these instances are only temporary phases in the evolution of a political frontier from wide, neutral border to the mathematically determined boundary line required by modern civilized states. Even when the boundary line has been surveyed and the boundary pillars set up, the frontier is prone to assert its old zonal nature simply because it marks the limits of human movements, rarely, for instance, does a customs boundary coincide with a political frontier, even in the most advanced states of Europe, except on the coasts, the student of Baedeker finds a gap of several miles on the same railroad between the customs frontier of Germany and France, or France and Italy, where the border district is formed by a high and rugged mountain range, the custom houses recede farther and farther from the common political line upon the ridge, and drop down the slope to convenient points, leaving between them a wide neutral tariff zone, like that in Haute-Savoie along the massive Mont Blanc range between France and Italy. Allied to this phase, yet differing from it, is the zone libre or free zone, 
12 miles broad and 1.833 miles long, which forms the northern hem of Mexico from the Gulf to the Pacific. Here foreign goods pay only 18.12%, formerly only 2.12%, of the usual federal duties. Goods going on into the interior pay the rest of the tariff at the inner margin of the zone. This arrangement was adopted in 1858 to establish some sort of commercial equilibrium between the Mexican towns of the Rio Grande Valley, which were burdened by excessive taxation on internal trade, and the Texas towns across the river, which at this time enjoyed a specially low tariff. Consequently prices of food and manufactured goods were twice or four times as high on the Mexican as on the American side. The result was persistent smuggling, extensive emigration from the southern to the northern bank, and the commercial decline of the frontier states of Mexico, till the Zona Libre adjusted the commercial discrepancy. Since 1816 a tariff-free Zona League-wide has formed the border of French Savoy along the Canton and Lake of Geneva, thus uniting this canton by a free passway with the Swiss territory at the upper end of the lake. When the political boundary has evolved by a system of contraction out of the wide waste zone to the nicely determined line, that line, nevertheless, is always encased, as it were, in a zone of contact wherein are mingled the elements of either side. The zone includes the peripheries of the two contiguous racial or national bodies, and in it each is modified and assimilated to the other. On its edges it is strongly marked by the characteristics of the adjacent sides, but its medial band shows a mingling of the two in ever-varying proportions, it changes from day to day and shifts backward and forward, according as one side or the other exercises in it more potent economic, religious, racial, or political influences. Its peripheral character comes out strongly in the mingling of contiguous ethnic elements found in every frontier district. Here is that zone of transitional form which we have seen prevail so widely in nature. The northern borderland of the United States is in no small degree Canadian, and the southern is strongly Mexican. In the Rio Grande counties of Texas, Mexicans constituted in 1890 from 27 to 55 percent of the total population, and they were distributed in considerable numbers also in the second tier of counties. A broad band of French and English Canadians overlaps the northern hem of United States territory from Maine to North Dakota, in the New York and New England counties bordering on the old French province of Quebec. They constitute from 11 to 22 percent of the total population, except in two or three western counties of Maine which had evidently been mere passwallies for a tide of habitants moving on to more attractive conditions of life in the counties just to the south but even these large figures do not adequately represent the British-American element within our boundaries, because they leave out of account the native-born of Canadian parents who have been crossing our borders for over a generation. If we turn to northern Italy, where a mountain barrier might have been expected to segregate the long-headed Mediterranean stock from the broad-headed Alpine stock, we find as a matter of fact that the ethnic type throughout the Po Basin is markedly brachycephalic and becomes more pronounced along the northern boundary in the Alps, till it culminates in Piedmont along the frontier of France, where it becomes identical with the broad-headed Savoyards. More than this, Provençal French is spoken in the Dora Balti Valley of Piedmont, and along the upper Dora Riparia and in the neighboring valleys of the Chizone and Pelis are the villages of the refugee Waldenses, who speak an idiom allied to the Provençal. More than this, the whole Piedmontese Italian is characterized by its approach to the French, and the idiom of Turin sounds very much like Provençal. To the north there is a similar exchange between Italy and Switzerland with the adjacent Austrian province of the Tyrol. In the rugged highlands of the Swiss Grisons bordering upon Italy, we find a pure Alpine stock, 
known to the ancients as the Rishans, speaking of degenerate Latin tongue called Romanche, which still persists also under the names of Ladino and Friulian in the Alpine regions of the Tyrol and Italy. In fact, the map of linguistic boundaries in the Grisons shows the dovetailing of German, Italian, and Romanche in a broad zone. The traveler in the southern Tyrol becomes accustomed in the natives to the combination of Italian coloring, German speech, and Alpine head form, whereas, if on reaching Italy he visits the hills back of Vicenza, he finds the German settlements of Tredici and Set Comuni, where German customs, folklore, language, and German types of faces still persist. Survivals from the days of German infiltration across the Brenner Pass, where Slavs and Teutons come together in Central Europe. Their race border is a zone lying approximately between 14 and 24 degrees east longitude, it is crossed by alternate peninsulas of predominant Germans and Austrians from the one side, Czechs and Poles from the other, the whole spattered over by a sprinkling of the two elements, rarely, and then only for short stretches, two political and ethnic boundaries coincide, the northern frontier hem of East Prussia lying between the river Neiman and the political line of demarcation is quite as much Lithuanian as German while German stock dots the whole surface of the Baltic provinces of Russia as far as St. Petersburg, the eastern rim of the Kaiser's empire as far south as the Carpathians presents a broad band of the Polish race, averaging about 50 kilometers 30 miles in width, sparsely sprinkled with German settlements, these are found farther east also as an ethnic archipelago dotting the wide Slav area of Poland, the enclosed basin of Bohemia protected on three sides by mountain walls and readily accessible to the Slav stock at the sources of the Vistula, enabled the Czechs to penetrate far westward and there maintain themselves, but in spite of encompassing mountains, the inner or Bohemian slopes of the Bamerwald, Erd, and Sudetes ranges constitute a broad gird with almost solid German population, in the Austrian provinces of Moravia and Silesia, which form the southeastward continuation of the Slav-German boundary zone. 60% of the population are Czechs, 33% are German, and 7% found in the eastern part of Silesia, are Poles. An ethnic map of the western Muscovite Empire in Europe shows a marked infiltration into a white and little Russia of West Slavs from Poland, and in the province of Bessarabia alternate areas of Russians and Romanians. The latter in places form an unbroken ethnic expansion from the home kingdom west of the Pruth extending in solid bands as far as the Dniester, and throwing out ethnic islands between the stream and the bug. Illustration, EDHNOGRAPHICAL Map of Russia, Edmolangiolaloidi, Kalmuks, Kyrgyz, Nogai, Tartars, Bushkars, Vogels, Ostiaks, Samoyas, Ziraian, Mengold Mongoloid and Finnish, in the northern provinces of Russia, in the broad zone shared by the aboriginal Finns and the later coming Slavs, Wallace found villages in every stage of Recification. In one everything seemed thoroughly Finnish, the inhabitants had a reddish olive skin, very high cheekbones, obliquely set eyes, and a peculiar costume. None of the women and very few of the men could understand Russian and any Russian who visited the place was regarded as a foreigner. In the second, there were already some Russian inhabitants, the others had lost something of their purely Finnish type. Many of the men had discarded the old costume and spoke Russian fluently and a Russian visitor was no longer shunned. In a third, the Finnish type was still further weakened, all the men spoke Russian, and nearly all the women understood it, the old male costume had entirely disappeared and the old female was rapidly following it, and intermarriage with the Russian population was no longer rare. In a fourth, 
intermarriage had almost completely done its work, and the old Finnish element could be detected merely in certain peculiarities of physiognomy and accent. This amalgamation extends to their religions prayers wholly taken devoutly uttered under the shadow of a strange cross. Next the Finnish god you make sharing honors equally with the Virgin. Finally a Christianity pure in doctrine and outward forms except for the survival of old pagan ceremonies in connection with the dead, at the confluence of the Volga and Kama rivers. This boundary zone of Russians and Finns meets the borderland of the Asiatic Mongols, and here is found an intermingling of races, languages, religions, and customs scarcely to be equaled elsewhere. Finns are infused with Tartar as well as Russian blood, and Russians show Tartar as well as Finnish traits. The Bushkars, who constitute an ethnic peninsula running from the solid Mongolian mass of Asia, show every type of the mongrel. See map page 225. If we turn to Asia and examine the western race boundary of the expanding Chinese, we find that a wide belt of mingled ethnic elements, hybrid languages, and antagonistic civilizations marks the transition from Chinese to Mongolian and Tibetan areas. The eastern and southern frontiers of Mongolia, formerly marked by the Great Wall, are now difficult to define, owing to the steady encroachment of the agricultural Chinese on the fertile edges of the plateau where they have converted the best-watered pastures of the Mongols into millet fields and vegetable gardens, leaving for the nomads herds the more sterile patches between. Every line of least resistance climatic, industrial, commercial sees the Chinese widening this transitional zone. He sprinkles his crops over the land of grass, invades the trade of the caravan towns, sets up his fishing station on the great northern bend of the Huanghu in the Ordos country, 300 miles beyond the wall to exploit the fishing neglected by the Mongols. The well-watered regions of the Nanshan Ranges has enabled him to drive along, narrow ethnic wedge, represented by the westward projection of Kansu province between Mongolia and Tibet, into the heart of the central plateau. See map page 103. Here the nomad Sifan tribes dwell side by side with Chinese farmers, who themselves show a strong infusion of the Mongolian and Tibetan blood to the north and south and whose language is a medley of all three tongues, in easternmost Tibet, in the elevated province of Menjak 2.600 meters or 8.500 feet. M. Hu found in 1846 a great number of Chinese from the neighboring Sichuan and Yunnan districts keeping shops and following the primary trades and agriculture. The language of the Tibetan natives showed the effect of foreign intercourse, it was not the pure speech of Alhasa but was closely assimilated to the idiom of the neighboring Sifan speech of Sichuan and contained many Chinese expressions. He found also a modification of manners, customs, and costumes in this peripheral Tibet. The natives showed more of the polish, cunning, and covetousness of the Chinese, less of the rudeness, frankness, and strong religious feeling characteristic of the Western Plateau man, just across the political boundary in Chinese territory. The border zone of assimilation shows predominance of the Chinese element with a strong Tibetan admixture both in race and civilization. Here Tibetan traders with their yak caravans are met on the roads or encamped in their tents by the hundred about the frontier towns, whither they had brought the wool, sheep, horses, hides and medicinal roots of the rough highland across that wild borderland which is neither Chinese nor Tibetan. The Chinese population consists of hardy mountaineers, who eat millet and maize instead of rice. The prevailing architecture is Tibetan and the priests on the highways are the red and yellow lamas from the Buddhist monasteries of the plateau. The country is a cross between China and Tibet. 
even the high wall of the Himalayas does not suffice to prevent similar exchanges of ethnic elements and culture between southern Tibet and northern India. Alhasa and Jayanga harbor many emigrants from the neighboring Himalayan state of Bhutan, allow them to monopolize the metal industry, in which they excel, and to practice and disturb their Indian form of Buddhism. The southern side of this zone of transition is occupied by a Tibetan stock of people inhabiting the Himalayan frontiers of India and practicing the Hindu religion. In the hill country of northern Bengal natives are to be seen with the Chinese queue hanging below a Hindu turban, or wearing the Hindu caste mark on their broad Mongolian faces. With these are mingled genuine Tibetans who have come across the border to work in the tea plantations of this region. See map page 102. The assimilation of culture within a boundary zone is in some respects the result of race amalgamation, as, for instance, in costume, religion, manners and language, but in economic points it is often the result of identical geographic influences to which both races are alike subjected. For example, scarcity of food on the arid plateau of Central Asia makes the Chinese of Western Kansu eat butter and curds as freely as do the pastoral Mongols. Though such a diet is obnoxious to the purely agricultural Chinese of the lowlands, the English pioneer in the Trans-Allegheny wilderness shared with the Indians an environment of trackless forests and savage neighbors. He was forced to discard for a time many essentials of civilization, both material and moral, despite a minimum of race intermixture. The men of the Cumberland and Kentucky settlements became assimilated to the life of the red man, they borrowed his scalping knife and tomahawk adopted his method of ambush and extermination in war, like him they lived in great part by the chase, dressed in furs and buckskin, and wore the noiseless moccasin. Here the mere fact of geographical location on a remote frontier, and of almost complete isolation from the centers of English life on the Atlantic slope, and the further fact of persistent contact with a lower status of civilization, resulted in a temporary return to primitive methods of existence till the settlements secured an increase of population adequate for higher industrial development and for defense. A race boundary involves almost inevitably a cultural boundary, often, too, a linguistic and religionary, occasionally a political boundary. The last three are subject to a wide fluctuation, frequently overstepping all barriers of race and contrasted civilizations, though one often accompanies another. It is necessary to distinguish the different kinds of boundaries and to estimate their relative importance in the history of a people or state. We may lay down the rule that the greater, more permanent, and deep-seated the contrasts on the two sides of a border, the greater is its significance, and that, on this basis, boundaries rank in importance, with few exceptions, in the following order, racial, cultural, linguistic, and political, the less marked the contrasts, in general. The more rapid and complete the process of assimilation in the belt of borderland, the significance of the border zone of assimilation for political expansion lies in the fact that it prepares the way for the advance of the state boundary from either side, in it the sharp edge of racial and cultural antagonism is removed, or for this antagonism a new affinity may be substituted. The zone of American settlement, industry, and commerce which in 1836 projected beyond the political boundary of the Sabine River over the eastern part of Mexican Texas facilitated the later incorporation of the state into the Union. Just as a few years earlier the Baton Rouge district of Spanish West Florida had gravitated to the United States by reason of the predominant American element there, and thus extended the boundary of Louisiana to the Pearl River, when the political boundary of Siberia was fixed at the Amur River. The Muscovite government began extending the border zone of assimilation far to the south of that stream by the systematic Pacific cation of Manchuria, 
with a view to its ultimate annexation, Schleswig-Holstein and Alsace-Lorraine, by reason of their large German population, have been readily incorporated into the German Empire. Only in Lorraine has a considerable French element retarded the process. The considerable sprinkling of Germans over the Baltic provinces of Russia and Poland west of the Vistula, and a certain Teutonic stamp of civilization which these districts have received, would greatly facilitate the eastward extension of the German Empire, while their common religions, both Protestant and Roman Catholic, would help obliterate the old political fissure. Thus the borderland of a country, so markedly differentiated from its interior, performs a certain historical function, and becomes, as it were, an organ of the living, growing race or state. Location on a frontier involves remoteness from the center of national, cultural, and political activities, these reach their greatest intensity in the core of the nation and exercise only unattenuated influence on the faraway borders, and less excellent means of communication keep up a circulation of men, commodities, and ideas between center and periphery, for the frontier. Therefore, the centripetal force is weakened, the centrifugal is strengthened often by the attraction of some neighboring state or tribe, which has established bonds of marriage, trade, and friendly intercourse with the outlying community. Moreover, the mere infusion of foreign blood, customs, and ideas, especially of foreign religion, which is characteristic of a border zone, invades the national solidarity. Hence we find that a tendency to political defection constantly manifests itself along the periphery. A long reach weakens the arm of authority, especially where serious geographical barriers intervene, hence border uprisings are usually successful, at least for a time. When accomplished, they involve that shrinkage of the frontiers which we have found to be the unmistakable symptom of national decline. This defection shows itself most promptly in conquered border tribes of different blood who lack the bond of ethnic affinity, and whose remoteness emboldens them to throw off the political yoke. The decay of the Roman Empire, after its last display of energy under Trajan, was registered in the revolt of its peripheral districts beyond the Euphrates, Danube, and Rhine, as also in the rapidudinous Autilon of Eastern Gaul, which here prepared the way for the assertion of independence. The border satraps of the ancient Persian Empire, 